This is episode number 706 with Katarina Constantinescu, Principal Data Consultant at Global Logic. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today I'm joined by the insightful Katarina Constantinescu. Katarina is a principal data consultant at Global Logic, which is a full lifecycle software development services provider that is huge and has over 25,000 employees worldwide. Previously, she worked as a data scientist for financial services and marketing firms. She's a key player in data science conferences and meetups in Scotland, and she holds a PhD from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. In this episode, Katarina details the best leaderboards for comparing the quality of both open source and commercial large language models, and the advantages and issues associated with LLM evaluation benchmarks. All right, let's jump right into our conversation. Katarina, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's nice to see you again. So where are you calling in from today? Edinburgh, Scotland, actually. I'm delighted to be here, by the way. Nice. Uh, Edinburgh is a place that, as you know from our, the time that we met at the New York R Conference, um, that Edinburgh is a, a place that I spent a lot of my time during my PhD at a research collaboration there um, that led to my only like really top machine learning journal paper. I had, I had a paper in NeurIPS from my uh, collaboration at the University of Edinburgh. So there's a lot of amazing uh, computer science faculty at Edinburgh and particularly sure. in AI and there have been for decades. Like it's like, it's a powerhouse school for AI. It might be one of the oldest AI schools around. I mean, I don't know what stretches back further. That's so interesting. Yeah, that's definitely a draw to Edinburgh, which is, uh, I feel like it doesn't really even need it. It's such a gorgeous, gothic looking place. But um, for me, my trajectory has been quite different. Um, I actually came here to study psychology and then sort of seamlessly segued into data science through, um, I don't know, some discoveries along the way that actually during my PhD, I was becoming more and more interested in the data design sort of aspects and uh, the experiments I was running, the data analysis, as opposed to the psychological theory per se. But then also some accidents happened along the way. Uh, I found myself running the R meetup in Edinburgh, met up with a lot of people who were doing data science and slowly but surely, I ended up uh, working for the data lab for a couple of years, and that was my first uh, proper data science gig, and I've just stuck with it ever since. Um, and I'm also still in Edinburgh. This is maybe 10 years later after having appeared on the scene here. So yeah, here we are. It's a beautiful city. Very dark in the winter, but <laughs> it's a beautiful city. <laughs> That's for sure. That is that is the tough thing about Edinburgh. I think in winter, um, the sun sets around three p.m., which is which is a bit grim, <laughs> to be mm-hmm. fair. But yeah, the uh, your affiliation with that R meetup in Edinburgh is, I guess, what ultimately brought us together because that's how you ended up uh, having a connection to the New York R meetup uh, that Jared Lander runs. And so yeah, you had a talk at the R conference. We filmed a Super Data Science episode live at the New York Hour Conference, and that was recently released as episode number 703 with Chris Wiggins. That was an awesome episode, and you had a great talk there as well on benchmarking large language models. So I wanted to dial, I wanted to have an episode focused specifically on that today. Um, so big news 
at least at the time of recording, and hopefully still quite relevant at the time that this episode is published because this space moves so quickly. But um, very recently, at the time of recording, Llama 2 was released. And Llama 2 came published by Meta with uh, 11 benchmarks where, so there's three Llama 2 models that were publicly released. There's a 7 billion, a 13 billion, and a 70 billion parameter model. And even the 13 billion parameter model on these 11 benchmarks that Meta published, it's comparable to what I would have said was previously the top open source large language model for chat applications, which was Falcon uh, 40 billion parameter model. So all of a sudden you have this Llama 2 architecture that's a third of the size with comparable performance on these benchmarks. But then when you jump to Llama 2, the 70 billion parameter uh, model, it blows all of the pre-existing uh, open source LLMs out of the model, uh, out of the water. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, so do you, should, should we believe this? Can we trust these kinds of benchmarks? What are, I mean, yeah, dig into us, uh, dig in for us uh, into why these benchmarks are useful, but also what the issues are. Cool. Yeah. So this is a really good starting point for our um, entire conversation because this example, I think, pulls in various aspects I really wanted to talk about. And I think um, the first one I'm going to dive into is what what does all of this mean? How can you, um, in a way that really does justice to all the effort that's been ongoing for the last few years in this LLM space, uh, unpack this idea of performance and what does it even mean? What are all the facets that are involved? And at the end of the day, once you do start to dive into all of this detail with all the benchmarks, all the metrics, all the particular domains that are involved in a particular uh, data set used within these uh, test suites, if you want, um, how do you kind of drill back up again to come up with some conclusions that actually make sense across this entire field, especially as it's moving so fast? Um, so I guess something that I would probably point towards as a risk first and foremost is we're immediately placed within this arena of academic research. And it's obviously an extremely well-developed area already. We are talking about all of these uh, benchmarks, as you mentioned, but what I wanted to kind of flag beforehand as well is at the end of the day, the idea is that these models are gonna be exposed to some layperson, some user, and their idea of performance may not really overlap particularly with what's in these all of these benchmarks. Um, I think a good example to really uh, drive this message home would be something like maybe as a random average person, I might be looking to interrogate ChatGPT as an example um, on what a suitable present would be for my niece. And my entire experience and my idea of performance might rather have to do with are the answers creative enough? Creativity is not something you typically see in these benchmarks and how would you even begin to measure creativity? So that's one aspect. It might also have to do with um, is the interface that surrounds these models uh, making it easy enough for users to interact with the models per se. So um, 
yeah, I think that's something that's definitely worth pursuing a lot more in conversations, especially as the the area uh, develops further. But to kind of return to the more uh, academic research angle as well, then what I'd probably um, dive into at this point, because it's a really good, uh, solid effort of trying to incorporate a lot of facets of measurement, metrics, data sets, is the whole effort surrounding the Helm paper. Um, so rather than um, immediately talk about, is this model better than that model on this task or that task or this metric or that metric, um, in Helm, I think the... Um, oh, sorry to interrupt you, Katerina, but quickly, let's define what Helm is, uh, at least like the acronym uh, for our listeners. So it's the Holistic Evaluation of Language Models, um, which, yeah, I'm sure you're going to go into is this comprehensive benchmark. But just before we get there, there was another aspect that you mentioned to me before we started recording related to issues with any of these tests. And maybe you were going to get into it with Helm anyway, but it's this issue of contamination. Yes. Um, so one aspect that I think isn't maybe as obvious, first and foremost, whenever we talk about evaluation um, risks, is this idea that especially models that are uh, considered to be state of the art and have, um, broadly speaking, good performance, air quotes, um, they tend to be closed source. Um, so what happens there is we don't have a very good grasp on all the types of data that went into these models in the first place. And therefore, the outcome of that is we have some degree of uncertainty in terms of are we actually exposing these models within our test to data they've actually already seen before? And then if that's the case, yeah. then obviously any performance we see might end up being inflated. This relates to, so if we're using GPT-4 and we're blown away that one, it gets amazing results on these kinds of metrics, but it's been trained on all of the internet. And so these, these test questions, the test answers, they're all in there. And so it's a classic uh, situation where when we're creating our machine learning model, we want to make sure that our evaluation data don't contain the training data. But if the algorithm has been trained on everything on the internet, probably uh, the, the questions on any evaluation and the answers are already in there. Even more so, it's interesting because we there's this huge jump from GPT 3.5 to GPT 4 with respect to performance on things like the LSAT and or or um, I don't know if it was specifically the LSAT actually it was it was some kind of general bar exam, which actually so that's so LSATs I guess is to get into law school in the U.S. Uh, the general bar exam is once you have your law degree and you want to qualify in a whole bunch of different states in the U.S. There's this general test and I can't remember the exact numbers but like. GPT 3.5 was like, you know, nine out of 10 uh, humans would outperform it. And then with GPT 4, it was the other way around. Only one out of 10 humans would outperform it on this bar exam. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's that's actually a really good example because um, LSAT is definitely part of uh, these benchmarks. So if something like uh, GPT 4 was trained to actually perform well on that, then if you come in and try to test it again on that same sort of um, benchmark, then that's slightly pointless because you're not going to really find out anything new about its performance. Um, and that kind of brings us to a different point uh, that I'm, I'm glad um, we're able to make at this point. Um, there's this whole idea of 
there's probably never going to be a particular point in time where we can stop refining and updating these benchmarks because, um, well, first and foremost, we don't know exactly what's been incorporated uh, in the training sets in the first place. So the only real way around that is to kind of find clever and cleverer ways to test the performance on models and uh, keep updating the benchmarks themselves. But separately as well, um, as performance evolves, then benchmarks actually might become obsolete and relatively speaking too easy. So from these two points of view, um, there's been this effort to keep adding new tests. For example, Big Bench, um, I think, started off with 200 um, tests or something of that nature, but now has 20, uh, 214 for this exact reason. Um, so that's why um, there's probably going to be a lot of movement also from the perspective of any type of standardization that might increase over time, because currently performance can mean a vast number of things. It could mean um, accuracy, it could mean um, fairness, it could mean lack of toxicity. So um, a big measurement problem is how do you incorporate all of these different aspects and do you even need to? Because there is some indication, there are there's some pieces of research that would suggest actually, despite being substantively quite different things, all of these facets end up being very highly correlated, which is also an interesting idea. Um, so yeah, for all of these reasons, I don't think uh, the research in this entire area is going to stop anytime soon. So another big problem is how do you even keep yourself up to date and digest mm -hmm. everything that's been happening in this field? Yeah, this does seem really tricky. This problem of constantly having to come up with new benchmarks uh, to evaluate. Um, and that's going to become a bigger and bigger problem because presumably in the same way that when you do a Google search today, you, of course, are getting information that's minutes or hours old from across the Internet. And it seems conceivable that in the not too distant future, um, while models like GPT-4 today are trained on data that stopped several years ago, presumably people are working on ways of constantly updating these model weights so that um, you have the LLMs right there in the model weights using up-to-date information about what's going on in the world. And so somebody could publish a benchmark and then minutes later, um, an LLM has already memorized the solutions. So it's, uh, yeah, moving goalposts, I guess is the definition. Exactly. Now, on the other hand, we can certainly say that these models are getting better. So despite all these issues, like I feel very confident that when I'm using GPT-4 relative to GPT-3.5, I am getting way better answers than before and uh, much less likely to have hallucinations than before. And so these tests should measure something. Like there's, you know, these these tests, I think, do have value. They have, they have tremendous value. And uh you know they, sh they should correlate i would hope that they would correlate i or at least it seems like when when these papers come out and you know llama 2 comes out and i see that wow it the 70 billion llama 2 model it outperforms falcon and vacuna vacuna and all these other previous models um 
And then I go and use the 70 billion Llama 2 in the Hugging Face chat interface. And I'm like, wow, this is actually pretty close to GPT-4 on some of these questions that I'm asking it that I feel like are questions that it, that it hasn't encountered before. So there is this underlying real improvement happening. Um, and it does seem to correlate with these quantitative metrics. But uh, yeah, the thorny problems, lots of thorny problems. I don't know. Do you think that Helm, it seemed like you felt like Helm could be a solution that you started talking about earlier? Um, I think the way they went about trying to systematically unpack performance and try to um, cross various factors is probably the way I would have um, ended up organizing this research. So that's why it really stuck out to me. Um, but yeah, the, the sheer scale of effort that went into it does make it very difficult to really, at some point, see the forest for the trees. And I want to dive into this idea a little bit more. But yeah, we're talking about, uh, for example, I think uh, five or six core types of tasks from things like um, summarization, information retrieval, um, oh, it's, uh, it's sentiment. Not- I've got the I got the page open in front of me. So again, how yeah. listeners, it's holistic evaluation of language models, and it's a Stanford University uh, effort from the Center for Research on Foundation Models (CRFM), and there are forty-two total scenarios that they evaluate over a bunch of categories, like you were describing. So, like summarization, question answering, sentiment analysis, toxicity mm-hmm. detection. It goes on and on and on. Knowledge, reasoning, harms, efficiency, calibration. And I'm not listing all the individual tests. I'm listing the categories. Yes, <laughs> and exactly. Categories, there could be half a dozen to a dozen different tests. Yes, and multiply all that by the tens of models they're considering. So very quickly, you arrive at this wealth of information. And if you take a step back, you naturally ask yourself, like, well, what does all of this mean? Um, now, the authors helpfully uh, try to sift through this volume of information by creating a leaderboard on the website. And this is another really interesting um, tool because it's not a unique concept. We have uh, leaderboards on Chatbot Arena, and we also have one on Hugging Face. But here's here's the thing. Uh, my initial thought process was, oh, great, I don't have to keep up with individual models necessarily. I can just take a glance at these leaderboards, get the gist of what's been happening in the area, and then anything that kind of leaps out at me, that's what I'll dive into a bit deeper. Uh, But I kind of started to realize that's not, it's not quite so um, simple. Uh, because even with these three leaderboards, the reality is um, their evaluation criteria, the models themselves that are included, don't overlap. So looking in three different places is already kind of creating a hazy picture of what's really going on. Um, So connected to this idea, I kind of realized that actually papers as vast as the Helm one kind of subtly introduce this concept of uh, time horizon you're interested in. Because if you're interested in models in the here and now, because maybe you want to pick one for a particular um, application that you want to create, then sure, you're going to dive into these and think, okay, for this task, this metric, I want to see which one does best, and I'll just go with that one and test it further myself or whatever. Um, But 
maybe there's more to the story if we have a longer term view then maybe what we're going to be interested in is nothing to do with the particulars of this model versus that one, but rather issues like what is a good um, standardized way that we can even think about measurement of these things because it's so vast, because it involves so many different aspects. Maybe at some point in the future, rather than checking um tens of different benchmarks, uh, multiple leaderboards, maybe there's going to be a distillation of fewer places to actually check, or at least we can hope. Um, and um, there's also an extra longer term focus, because at the end of the day, once we get all of these metrics, right, like um, accuracy in terms of, I don't know, um, information retrieval or uh, Q&A and, and any associated metrics uh, that get computed for tens of models, what we can do with those is start to frame everything as a prediction problem, which is where things get really interesting. Because if we keep uh, collecting these types of um, metrics, we're finally going to get closer to this point in time where we get to say, okay, what are the ingredients um, from various models that actually go into this observed level of performance? Is it the fact that they have this many parameters? Is it the fact that they had this training objective? Or like, generally speaking, is there some sort of recipe of success that tends to lead to better performance? And if so, what is it? And we won't really know the answers to these types of questions unless we do all of these evaluations, but look at them from this much broader perspective of not this model or that model, but general laws that somehow govern how LLMs operate on a general level. Yeah, all really, really great points and very uh, thoughtful to think that we could eventually converge and have kind of one state of truth for yeah you know, to go to. Uh, it is interesting going to the open LLM leaderboard from Hugging Face uh, at time of recording. We do have various variants of Llama 2 that are generally near the top. Um, <laughs> looks like some groups have kind of retrained it with more instruction tuning. Um, and yeah, Hugging Face is trying to do an average over some different evaluations like Hello Swag, like MMLU, like Truthful QA. But those tests are just three of the 40 tests <laughs> that Helm ran, for example. Yeah, so I guess, I mean, it's it's nice to think that we could maybe go and kind of have one absolute answer. But I think on the other hand, depending on specific use cases that, you, that you're going to have for you or your users, maybe these different kinds of benchmarks, this kind of level of granularity is useful. Mm -hmm. um, so with Llama 2, for example, um, I've actually not tested this myself, but I've read that Llama 2 doesn't perform as well on um, code tasks or uh, math tasks as something like GPT-4, uh, even though it can be comparable in a lot of just plain natural language situations where it's just human language. Um, so yeah, so that kind of distinction could end up being important depending on your use case. Like you wouldn't want to, I guess, take Llama 2 and make something that's kind of like a GitHub copilot with it. Um, yeah. You might want to start with something else. That's, uh, to be fair, yeah, I, I do agree, actually, with that point. And uh, it does bring to mind all sorts of really interesting 
tests that are part of um, Big Bench. And we're dealing with things like um, finding uh, anachronisms and uh, anagrams and stuff like that, which depending on the application of a model might really be completely irrelevant. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so in addition to Helm and the Hugging Face Open Leaderboard, which I'll be sure to include in the show notes, um, you also briefly mentioned the chatbot arena, which yeah. in some ways it collects more a valuable, more expensive data because instead of having evaluations be done on um, these benchmarks, there's head-to-head comparisons and then human users select whether they like the output from model A or model B and they can be blinded as to what those models are. And in the very next episode coming up, episode number 707, we've got Professor Joey Gonzalez of Berkeley University, who is uh, one of the key people behind that chatbot arena. So he's going to go into a lot more detail and he'll also disclose for us (laughs) why it isn't as perfect an evaluation as it seems. There's still issues like there's always. Yeah, I guess we're, you know, I guess like many things in science and technology, we are making errors, but hopefully smaller errors all the time and moving in the direction of progress, which again, it's safe to say, like, you know, all these kinds of uh, criticisms that we can have of these uh, particular evaluation benchmarks or leaderboards, ultimately, we know qualitatively that this is a very fast moving space and it's crazy what these models are doing recently in the past year. Um. And, you know, what I mentioned towards the beginning of the podcast having to do with uh, end users and what do they actually think of um, as good performance? What does that even mean? And I think um, Chatbot Arena um, actually gets quite close to this idea with their system of incorporating these ELO ratings. Um, So that's something I really um, enjoyed playing around with earlier today myself. Um, So uh, broadly speaking... This is um, an approach that's been um, adopted from chess. So in terms of what happens in uh, larger tournaments, you might have two players opposing each other. And depending on who wins, they either um, get a boost in points or if they lose, they actually get points deducted. And the same sort of approach is um, used on these LLMs. Um, but just as a regular, um, user, you might have some prompt in your mind, like, um, please generate text as though, um, Elon Musk had written it or something like that, or like the text of a tweet. And, um, I tried this earlier myself and, uh, to be, to be fair, both answers I got from the competing models were actually quite, uh, legit. Musk sounding, if you will. Um, so yeah, that's that's a lot of fun to um, to play around with, and it's definitely a highlight in terms of what um, Chatbot Arena contributes, as opposed to say Helm. Although um, even in that case, um, there is an attempt made to incorporate some um, human feedback into the loop as well, but I don't think it's anywhere near being the focus of that body of work. Nice. Yeah. But uh, a, a good mention there of the kind of thing, this kind of human feedback as being a great way of moving forward. And uh, the chatbot arena, I think everything is made available. Um, all the data are made available for people to use and make models better. So 
very cool space to be in, very exciting times to be in AI in general, as I'm sure all of our listeners are already aware and maybe part of why they're listening to the show. Um, yeah. So Katerina, before I let you go, I ask our guests for a book recommendation. Do you have one for us? I do. Um, it's something that sprung to mind, although actually my first encounter with this book was a very, very long time ago when I was still doing my psychology degree. And I actually have it right here with me. It's The Illusion of Conscious Will by Daniel Wegner. And um, when I came across this, I was actually studying in France on an Erasmus grant. And I remember being stunned at this concept that... Um, conscious will can actually be manipulated experimentally. And it, honestly, it's it's a joy to read. Um, the level of intellectual um, ingeniousness in how these experiments are devised so that uh, people's subjective feeling of having wanted to do something ends up being manipulated is, is just, um, to me at this point, unique. So if anybody has any uh, curiosity about this, I highly, highly recommend it. And uh, who knows, these notions of conscious will maybe will kind of come into the conversation and kind of have already with LLMs. So there you go. Yeah, that is certainly something the the relationship between conscious experience, artificial general intelligence, this is something that we dove into with Ben Gertzel in episode number 697. And it is something that as somebody with a neuroscience PhD, I'm really fascinated by. I, uh, as I mentioned to you, Katarina, before we started recording, uh, I had a full PhD scholarship to do a PhD in consciousness. So in the neural correlates of consciousness, so trying to identify using brain scans or probably some, some of the kinds of experiments outlined in, in your book, in the illusion of conscious will, where, um, we use things like um, intracranial stimulation. So mm -hmm. you, uh, yeah, you, you- TMS, fire, right? Transcranial magnetic stimulation, exactly. That's what, yeah, TMS, thank you. Uh, which uh, allows you to have uh, a magnetic signal. And you may remember from physics that magnetism and electricity are directly intertwined. And so you can send these magnetic signals through the skull and then impact the way that your brain cells work which involves some electrical conductivity. And yeah, you can influence people's conscious perceptions, like you're saying. Uh, and so there's this really, in some ways, it's kind of an obvious thing to say to probably scientifically minded people, like a lot of our listeners, that because we live in a system of cause and effect, you can't possibly have some little person in your brain that is separate from all that and somehow is making decisions <laughs> in some some way that's beyond just physical processes like uh, you know cause and effect collisions of molecules, yet we very compellingly have this illusion of free will. And to some extent, yeah, I mean, if you come to grips with that, if you really accept that free will is an illusion, then I don't know. It can be tough. <laughs> Life can start to feel tough. So it is a terrifying idea. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't end up taking up that PhD scholarship because I was like, this might really do my head in um, and got into machine learning instead. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm pleased you did because now here we are, luckily. 
Yeah. Well, anyway, thank you very much, Katerina. This was a really interesting episode, a really nice dive into evaluating large language models. Very last thing, if people want to follow you after the show, hear your latest thoughts, what's the best way to do that? Um, probably on uh, Twitter. So you can find me at C double underscore Constantine. Nice. We'll be sure to include that in the show notes. Katerina, thank you so much. And catch you again in a bit. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Super. What an informative discussion. In today's episode, Katerina covered how ordinary users of LLMs may have qualitative evaluations that diverge from benchmark evaluations. How evaluation dataset contamination is an enormous issue given that the top-performing LLMs are often trained on all the publicly available data they can find, including benchmark evaluation datasets. And finally, she talked about the pros and cons of the top LLM leaderboards, namely Helm, Chatbot Arena, and the Hugging Face Open LLM Leaderboard. If you liked today's episode, be sure to tune into the next one, number 707, when we have Professor Joey Gonzalez, a co-creator of the Chatbot Arena, as well as seminal open source LLMs like Vicuña and Gorilla. Yeah, he'll be on the show next week. All right, that's it for today's episode. Support this show by sharing, reviewing, or subscribing, but most importantly, just keep listening. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon. Thank you.